Hi friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker and I am your host for the first episode of a new season of the Love is Stronger Than Fear podcast. Today I get to talk with my friend David Bailey. David is a black man, a Christian. He's a leader of a ministry called Arabon down in Richmond, Virginia. He doesn't tell you this when we talk, but he's also a speaker who has been around the country speaking at various conferences. He is well known for his work in the field of reconciliation. He is smart and thoughtful and such a caring, kind guy. And I'm so glad you're going to get to hear us talk about reconciliation, about Confederate monuments, about where he sees signs of hope and of healing. But before I turn to this interview, I do want to explain one thing. David and I met through mutual friends a couple of years ago, and these friends come up in my book, White Picket Fences. David makes reference to them, and we talk about them a little bit, because these friends of ours, about 15 years ago, my husband's college roommates, a whole group of them, moved into a low-income and predominantly African-American neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia, and David and his wife have also moved into that same neighborhood. So I just wanted to let you know that so you uh, understand what we're talking about when we make reference to it. I'm excited for you to get to meet him and hear about his work. So without further ado, here is our conversation. I'm here today with my good friend, David Bailey, and I'm so excited to get to talk with him about white picket fences, but even more so about current events and about the work that he does that does involve race and justice and privilege and culture, but really is about a work of reconciliation and healing. And I want to actually turn it over to David and just ask you to say a little bit more just about who you are, where you're from, and what you do as your vocation. Well, thank you so much for having me, Amy Julia. It's been, uh, yeah, just good friendship. It's good to be able to like share. I'm glad you're doing this podcast. Uh, really love White Picket Fences. So I lead an organization called Arabon. Arabon uh, is a word that means a foretaste of things to come. It's a Greek word in the New Testament that the scripture says that the Holy Spirit was given to the church as a foretaste of the kingdom of God that's to come. And so in the world, like people who aren't Christians, they don't get the Holy Spirit. What they get is the is the church. And the church really needs to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God to come. So I think in many ways, like the the heaven that we we hope for, that we see, it's like a tribe before you buy type of policy. And, you know, like that's the kind of uh, work we really try to help the church to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God. So what we do is in like a digital world, that the world's more digital than it's ever been before, it's more diverse than it's ever been before, it's more divided than it's ever been before. Mm. We try to equip Christian communities to become reconciling communities. We hear a lot about reconciliation, but I have always heard that term paired with the word racial. And I've appreciated knowing you that you don't always pair the term reconciliation with racial. And I want, I'd love to hear you say more about that because that's been helpful to me. Yes, I'll kind of say two things. I think like one and kind of like people who are involved, if you understand like the history of America and you use the word like racial reconciliation, the word reconciliation means, hey, you want to like bring things back together, the relationship the way that it originally was. Well, that's not a good thing in America. Like Europeans, Africans, indigenous people were never equal um, in existence of our country. So 
so we don't want to reconcile that. What a lot of folks say, hey, the better language you use is conciliation. We can engage in with a conciliation and bring some equality and healing and uh, together. So I think, okay, if you're defining rec reconciliation in that type of way and you're starting the American narrative, then I say, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, for me, I use it as a theological term. And the scripture talks about how Genesis 1, that, that like the world was whole, it was good, it was diverse, and it was beautiful. Hmm. Genesis 3 says the world was broken. And ever since then, there's been a process of God working through Christ to reconcile all things. And so that's kind of the invitation of Christians to engage in that. Like, I don't have to wonder, our relationship's broken, our system's broken, our uh, um, the way people engage with one another is broken. Like, we know that. It's really more so about what are the details and how can we go in the process of reconciling all things. So in the work that you do, is that typically primarily related to helping Christians think about what God has to say when it comes to our racial divides? Are there other aspects? Like, what does that end up looking like? And kind of a, you know, I come into a church that wants to work on this stuff and doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, so what we do is we look at, like, issues of race, class, and culture. Okay. Um, you know, and, like, there's a history. Like, one of the things, everybody has a thought and opinion and experience with the issues of race. There's not a person that doesn't. Mm. You know, and so uh, even if they're like, oh, I never think about it. I don't know why people make a big deal about it. Like, there's an experience that folks are bringing to this conversation, a lens in which they're looking through. And so we help people to understand that. And, and, and really kind of what's God's heart for people? How does God encourage us to engage with one another? Class is also going to be an issue. Like, uh, scripture tells us to be mindful of people who are poor, but we live in a country that's been designed in ways where the kind of promise of being middle class and above, like the wealthier you become, the less poverty you have to see. Mm. And our cities were designed like not in a way like you could even want to go see poverty. You could actually want to engage with people of a, a different socioeconomic space. But most of us, like most of our cities have been designed to keep wealthy people away from poor people. And it really is really hard for us to be Christians in that kind of way. And people are like, hey, what does that have to do with being a Christian? And it's like, but if you read the Good Samaritan, it was a story about like to say, hey, what, what's the greatest commandment? To love God and love your neighbor. Well, who's your neighbor? That's the, the religious lawyer says. And it's like, hey, it's the guy that's on a cross town, on that bad part of town <laughs> where people get beat up. Right. And there was a nice Levite, good church member that walked by. There was a nice minister, priest walked by. And it was this other Samaritan, this person that they grew up despising, that they were taught that they should despise of a different ethnicity, a different religious background. They became the, the hero of the story. They were the ones that, that showed what it was right. like to be a neighbor. And so basically our society has been built where there's highways and byways to skip over the Jericho Road. And, and, and that makes it really hard for us to do some of a core Christian practice. So I know you've thought a lot about this in your own life and how to actually live that out. Uh, can you talk a little bit just about the decisions you've made to actually be encountering people who are not exactly the same as you all the time? Yeah. I mean, so, well, it's interesting because I grew up both like, I mean, I have two parents with college degrees, African-American. My dad grew up in poverty. And, uh, and so I, by the nature of living in the suburbs, 
I was with people who were different than me, you know, and it kind of it chose chose me versus me choosing it. But mm. then when my wife and I decided to move, some of the folks that you went to college with, some of the people that's in the uh, White Picket Fence book, we decided to live in that just neighborhood. And so, and part of the reason why was because a lot of you know your friends like the Corys and Sarahs and Lawson and Ramesh and Danny and uh, Mary Kay, all these folks, they either were white. Or they were like Asian doctors, right? And so, literally, is, yeah, like, mm-hmm. like literally, like you know. And so, I was friends with them, um, just from just being friends and kind of seeing what they were doing, being in the community, and particularly like twelve, fifteen years ago when they started, a lot, they moved to a, a poor black neighborhood, right? And a lot of the kids associated like economic stability. Uh, marriage with being white and they didn't see a hmm. uh, like married black couple with a like decent home like our, our home is not going to be on cribs but it's like you know it's like a right. decent home yeah yeah you know? um, but it's like we said hey you know what we should we should move into a community amongst kind of like brothers and sisters who, who are black that are in a different socioeconomic space like when my dad was growing up doing segregation, yeah. Like you know, he he grew up around black lawyers and doctors, um, right. I, and we live in that same neighborhood that he grew up in, and uh, and so now, you know, the kids could see something. I mean, like it, this, like college educated married black couples is an anomaly in a way that it was fifteen years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. It's also been a really good gift for me. Like yeah. I thought I was coming there for them. It's really been a great gift for me that Can, like, like it's, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say in what ways, because that's certainly, and you know this because we've been friends and talked about this before, but for me, similarly, every time I have stepped into relationship or community, especially with people who seem different from me, I have had to feel vulnerable and I've had to give and it's been uncomfortable and I've gained <laughs> so much um, in terms of just understanding who I am and and just being freed, I think, from some of the uh, constraints that I put on myself and that the world has put on me. So anyway, I'd just love to hear more about that from you. Well, I mean, I think uh, you named it. I mean, I, I, I think I think people, so some people take issues with the word privilege, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and privilege is a thing. I mean, it just means that you get more options than other people, right? Mm. Like, and, and you, get, you get more access than other people. So, you know, um, and it can look a lot of different ways. Well, this part of me is a male, and there's a lot of privileges that comes just being a man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, whether it's even like when you start talking, people listen to you versus having a higher pitched feminine voice. You know, right. people don't always stop and listen. You know, having a versus having a deeper masculine voice. There's also a privilege that comes from like in America from having white skin. You know, like it's not necessarily. And I think the way to understand that is. There are a lot of poor white people, right? And they're, you know, it's 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 a lot of poor white people. But the reason why they're poor is not because there was a government policy that put in place that made them poor, mm-hmm. or or obstacle had overcome because of their white their white skin. Yeah, I've thought. I mean, as you know, I've thought a lot about privilege, and there are two things that come to mind. One is I think a lot about it as unearned social advantages. Oh, that's good. 
you know, just like I didn't earn it. It's a social yeah. advantage. I earned, I didn't earn it. And yeah. um, my friend Nero, who also is in white picket fences, she says that, you know, just because you have a hard li- like white people have hard lives just as brown and black people have hard lives. But the hardship is not coming because of the color of your skin. Yeah. And that right. I thought was another just helpful way to be like, oh, right. Yeah. Yes. OK, we can. Totally. Yeah, we can move on now. But then there's also like a side to it, too, when you're like educated, right? And you have access, you have relationships, you have networks. Yep. I don't really, I mean, I can't tell you the last time I applied for a job. You know, I just, and when I did right. apply for a job, it was like a matter of formality. It was like people, you know, I just, I just have a certain amount of access and privileges. Right. So the relationships you already had were yeah. what led into job opportunities as yeah. opposed to, I need to go searching yeah. um, and go through a formal process. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So as a result, like, I mean, so even like, I might not be as privileged as a white person or, you know, but there is uh privileges that I do experience by being uh a person that could speak uh, like I have a college degree and have a college degree and networks and all that kind of stuff. And I just have found me literally living and being in a relationship with people who don't have those kind of access and privileges help me not to be so pretentious. Mm. It helps me to like be a human being. Like instead of like if you and I meet for the first time being like, hey, so Amy, Julie, what do you do? And we, you know, and like we got this like social hierarchy scale and just trying to be like, you know, I just like people like my my neighbors. They don't really fully know what I do. They don't understand what I do. Yeah. Like, and so I can't really find like status off of that, right? And this just helps me to relate to folks like as just a human being, and it's just good for my soul. I was know? about to say, and to know that you are related too, just as a human being. That it's not like, yes. ooh, there's my important neighbor, David. You know, it's like, yeah, right, he's just, right. He's just my neighbor. Like, and yeah. um, I, I I've found that. I mean, I think kids can offer that, but especially in terms of relationships with people with disabilities, where my college degree and like how many articles I read yesterday, like it doesn't right. matter. Right. But whether or not I can like listen and attend and be present in love, like that matters yeah. a lot. And wow, yeah. does that matter to me too, you know? And does yeah. it change me to be in that place? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so I'm curious to hear a little bit, um, just bringing it into this moment. I know Richmond has been a seat of many protests in the past couple of weeks. I've been following that more closely just because of knowing y'all down there. Um, I've seen that there have been some calls for monuments to come down. Um, I've seen some of the uh, photos on Instagram of prayer gatherings um, in your neighborhood as well as other places around the city. So I'm just curious like how you are seeing what's happening in Richmond over the course of the past two weeks. Is this a um, kind of moment where people are just jumping on a bandwagon and it's a fad? Or is this a sense of an uh, like a real season of change in that city and or potentially in our nation? That's a good question. I mean, I think time will tell whether it's a fad or not. I would say that this feels a lot different to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I saw that Rush Limbaugh went on the Breakfast Club, huh. that was like, oh, this is something different. So, so if you know who Rush Limbaugh is, you probably don't know who the Breakfast Club is. <laughs> if you know what the Breakfast Club is, you probably don't know what Rush, who Rush. So Limbaugh why don't you is. explain all of that? <laughs> so Rush Limbaugh 
was like um, probably the most popular conservative uh, radio talk show personality. And then you have the Breakfast Club is like uh, the most popular morning radio station uh, led by black and brown millennials. Hmm. And um, and let's just say these two paths don't cross. And, wow. and Rush Limbaugh, when George, when George Floyd, when that happened, he reached out and kind of huh. went to offer like an olive branch and say like, hey, I'm sorry for what happened and something has to be done with policing. And so, you know, that conversation was very interesting because yeah, they actually- I didn't know that it of, happened. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. It's worth, it's worth probably listening to. Yeah. You can kind of see, you can also kind of see like why it's so tough hmm. um, in our society right now to actually find unity because folks are so entrenched into their ideologies mm-hmm. that they don't end up um, finding any common ground to begin to build some bridges on. Hmm. So, so Rush Limbaugh was like, hey, I'm sorry for what happened to George Floyd. That was tragic. Something needs to happen, you know, with the, and we need to change that with the police officers. But he did not want to submit to the idea of white privilege because that he called it that, or, or white supremacy. Hmm. He didn't want to, like, give even, like, an inch to those, those ideas. Yeah. Uh, because there were, demo- he said, like, there were liberal democratic ideas that were, like, made up. Right. But, um, and for them, they were like, hey, if you can't admit that white people aren't privileged, like, even just when it comes to like policing, that that just wouldn't happen to a white man in that kind of way. And then that's, uh, that's, that's, you know, we can't make any traction, you know? Right, right. So that was a really... I was, part. when it all first happened, um, the fact that it, I this situation, this killing of George Floyd was so... Uh, condemned left and right made me yeah. actually want I was surprised that that then sp- actually led to such a conversation about police reform because I thought yeah. it was going to be held up as this exceptional case like this yeah. isn't what usually happens yeah this is just a really bad situation and instead yeah. it really has led even right now to some you know both Republicans and Democrats saying we gotta t- we gotta address this which has yeah. been encouraging to me and to see, I mean, I listened to this um, podcast between Ezra Klein and Ta-Nehisi Coates um, earlier uh-huh. this week that was so interesting. Starts with ta Coates saying, I'm really hopeful, which are not words that he, he says very that. often. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and, but he also said the reason he's hopeful is that this is a movement that is more um, both national and global than most of the protests have been after police killings in the past, that it's been sustained in time, even after uh, Derek Chauvin was um, indicted, and that it's more diverse, that you don't just have people who, you know, kind of your typical, whether it's Black Lives Matter people or um, people of color, but you actually do have a lot of white people who are saying, enough, Um, we got to do something. So um that's certainly what you know i've kind of been seeing but here i am in my three thousand person predominantly white town in western connecticut so it's curious no, i think yeah. it's, i think it's true you know and i think like um i definitely think that i think the looting and some, the rioting were either like either opportunists mm-hmm. or just some folks who just like wanted to kind of destroy do stuff I mean, like there were a lot of folks like there are so many testimonies that i've heard around the country of like actual official Black Lives Matter organizers that were like, yo, we're not doing this. Like this is, right. you know, this is like a peaceful protest and then somebody's doing all that kind of activity. 
so, you know, the night, I mean, I, I walked down Monument Avenue in mm. Richmond, Virginia. We've had, we have five Confederate statues um, in, on this like street called Monument Avenue. It's the only historically registered, only street that's on the historical registry site of the United States. Mm. And so um, it's a really significant area. And I just saw the, van, the, the, the vandalism, the, the, what people call blight, you know, and I looked at the word blight and what's really fascinating is, is that that word blight means um, it's kind of used oftentimes like it, it's something that will kind of take the value down, you mm, know? Sure. And, and there's kind of also like a plant, kind of like diseasing of a plant that mm-hmm. will take the life out. And so it was really interesting because I was looking at it because that's like the vandalism was would be considered like blight on these like monuments. Right. But then it could also be a blight that one would see the actual monuments itself. Right. Then there's kind of like a blight about our history dealing with the disease of racism. And that's kind of a blight on our ideals as Americans. I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. Like, where is the blight here? And I will say, so when I moved to Richmond right out of college, I was, you know, 22 years old, newly married, and I lived on Monument Avenue. And my husband and I literally walked to church in the morning past two of those statues um, on Sunday mornings. And we just didn't think about them. Yeah. I mean, it's not as though if we had stopped and had a conversation, we would have said anything admiring about the men on those horses. Like, but I mean, both of us a few years later, not like 20 years later, but nevertheless, we're like, why did it not even cross our minds that it was a blight on our street <laughs> that we yeah. were passing by these? Um, I mean, they're humongous. Anyone who has not been yeah. to Richmond, they are towering yeah. edifices of stone yeah. and metal, right? Like, yeah. um, so I I am glad for, you know, just the attention that in recent years, not just in recent weeks, has come up with these Confederate monuments and and hopeful for the conversations that can come about what our history is. I mean, one of the things like that sense of even when we tell the ugly parts of our history, it's so that that can be healed, brought into the light. Um, It's not so that we can just flip the power and shame the people who were once in power, right? Like it's okay. How can we um, actually make this a more equitable place for everybody? And and I think it's important because like a lot of folks like there's kind of a, a a kind of sleight of hand in the conversation that happens that like when you take the monuments down you're trying to erase history, right. and it's not necessarily that you're trying to erase history, it's that those monuments were put up to share a narrative, and so like you know as like as a a, a white man like and a white woman, I mean you, you could walk by it and not think about it as to somebody a black person growing up in richmond like it was it was set up so that black people knew what time it was <laughs> like well, and yeah like, will you, <laughs> like i assume you know this history like will you shared though just when those monuments were set up because it wasn't like a few years after the civil no, this war was like if i remember correctly i think it may and you i feel like it was between like 1880 and like 1910 I think that's right like so it was essentially as white supremacy was becoming the rule and Jim Crow was becoming the law of the yeah. land 
there were literally let's make there be symbols of this yeah. that are very clear to everyone. And again, for me as a white person, a hundred years later, it was like, huh, look at that interesting thing. You know, yeah. if I even thought about it, whereas, yeah. but if you're a black person, it's like, I know exactly what that represents. And it yeah. does not, it, it is not a space of belonging for me. Right. Like yeah, if you're, yeah. and, and I think for cities to think about what their architecture communicates, um, not just in terms of monuments, but in terms of where highways go and what you were just saying earlier about how cities are designed, all of that communicates who belongs here and um, who are we for and, yeah. you know, how can we do more to be for all of the residents in our spaces, you know? Totally. And I, I think there's there's other one element, another element of blight that I think is this conversation. And I think this is, this is like disease of redemptive violence, hmm. you know? And I think there's like a wider conversation that we really need to have that we oftentimes, in my theological opinion and conviction is that Christians should not have a myth of like a, of a redemptive violence. Like violence never leads to healing, you know? And, and Jesus, like whenever there was violence committed against a person, Jesus moved towards healing. But, you know, there's a story of like the Union against violence against the, the, the uh, Confederates and the Confederates against the Union. Well, the protests are about like people in a power of authority, like kind of overstepping in violent ways of like a minority community. But then also it's really interesting because some of the complaints, like there were a lot of people I know in spaces that weren't complaining about the violence of police officers on unarmed citizens, but are complaining about the violence to property that's happening now because of what it's doing to the economy. So like when it's like, or just in the property. And again, I I have a a strong ethic against violence, you know. Right, right. In either like, case, right? In any case, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I, I think it's I think it's in my I'm saying like I think it's all wrong, right? Right, right. But I just think like we oftentimes pick and choose like where violence is redemptive and, and, and leads towards healing. In reality, it just never does. Right. Well, and we've also got the irony, which of the predominantly white protests that were happening before the George Floyd protests. Oh, yeah. In which, the, you know, there was not the same type of police presence. Yes. Or <laughs> combative just, action, just, right? So Yeah, you just you just hit a vein on that one. Like I mean, and this is like a this is like a total definition. Like if people don't believe white privilege is real, let a group of black or Middle Eastern American citizens go up to any state capital with some guns and protest. And like and my question is if you're upset about COVID and what it's doing to the economy, why do you need semi automatic weapons? to protest that point. And why would that be considered to be a peaceful protest? Right. So then you go with unarmed folks coming to talk about racial violence. And, and even like, even in the sense of that looting, they're damaging property, not even like, I mean, they, they can't, I mean, again, you know, police, police officers, there are ways that human beings can be harmed in a situation like that. I yeah. get that. But just the level of escalation is challenging. And if you're kind of like, oh, well, that's not true. Like literally, when the Black Panther Party did this in 1967 and they went up to the California uh, state government building and um, they went and got their attention like with the guns to bring attention again right. to police yep. violence in the Oakland neighborhood. Um, 
the governor, who was Reagan at the time, hmm. a conservative governor, um, created a gun control law right. so that guns couldn't happen in California with the NRA's approval. Right. And so again, I don't believe in violence. At the same time, I understand why people would get so upset and engage in that kind of way because the rules change for black black and people and people of color when it comes to change. Like the rules of like change in American citizenship doesn't apply for black people in the same way for for their own issues. Right. Who is allowed to be violent or to demonstrate their capacity to be violent by carrying yeah. a gun? All yeah. of those questions. I'm curious too, though, because we've got these extremes, I think, on both sides, so to speak, mm-hmm. the extreme, you know, white gun carrying protester or the extreme looting you know, not even protester, but the person who's just causing mayhem. And then you've got all these people who are much more in the middle, um, and especially white people who I think, and I've been thinking about myself in the past and some people I know now as restless sleepers, where I know there's something that's not right about how our society is working, but I'm kind of doing okay, so I'm going to try to keep sleeping. But it keeps waking me up. And yeah. then I think the past couple of weeks has literally woken a lot of people up yeah. and there's, but when you wake up, you're disoriented and you feel like maybe you have, you know, are stumbling around from the night before or, oh my gosh, I'm late to the party. Like, this is, you know, what am I doing here? And so I'm thinking about that group of people who are kind of just starting to really examine what does it mean to be a white person or to even have like a racial identity should I feel guilty for that? Should I feel shamed for that? Um, and I think there's just a lot of yeah. fear that comes up. I, I, in the beginning of White Picket Fences, I write about how in writing the book, I figured out I had developed an eye twitch. And I literally was, finally someone said to me, I think you're afraid. And it's as if you think people are going to throw things at you if you try to write about race and class and privilege and you're flinching, like it's like the subconscious reaction. And so I started literally praying every time my eye flinched that God would protect me and it stopped, like it stopped twitching. But I'm just curious, like from your perspective, why does it feel so scary to have even like, you know, conversations about race that shouldn't look threatening from the outside, I guess, but why does it feel so scary and threatening for white people who are just coming into this conversation, do you think? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think any conversation about, this is a workshop that we offer at Airbond, any conversation about race, class, or culture is always going to bring up issues of fear, grief, anger, and shame. You know, and so it's like you might be fearful about saying the wrong thing or fearful that like if I kind of share a little bit more vulnerably that somebody could really um, like not do it that well, like be really painful. Um, you could be grieved because the world is not the way that you thought it was, which, you know, um, or grieve like some legitimate things that were wrong, you know, mm-hmm. and and you, you got to go, it kind of sparks a grief cycle of denial of, you know, uh, was it denial, uh, anger, um, depression, mm-hmm. bargaining and acceptance. Right, right. right. And, and the thing is, everybody doesn't go through that same process, the same thing, like even within your own family, right? Like you could lose the same loved one, but everybody doesn't go through right. their grief process in the same way. That's also true as it relates to race, right? Class and culture. 
I mean, there, then there's all the, like anger. Like there's some things that we really should be angry about, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or you can kind of get fed over a period of time, and then you know there's shame, right? And shame looks different for people of color, it's different for white people. And one of the mm-hmm. things is that you can uh, have uh, like nobody's responsible and had a choice about what skin color they were born with. Nobody also had a choice with what what that skin color has meant legally and culturally in American society. But sometimes when you come to the revelation of like what that has meant and you realize like, oh, it's really bad. Then you're like, oh, I feel ashamed mm-hmm. of the skin color that I have. Right. And that's not the that's not the proper response, you know. And so you gotta kinda like be able to name it and to kind of work through it and to begin to like discover, you know, and again I'm a person of faith. And so whenever you see shame, you know, like you want to kind of like bring that before the Lord and say like, Hey God, like, what's this about? How, how, like, is there a conviction that you, that's underneath the shame? Is there something that I should do or be able to learn or journey in or something? Um, I think you want to kind of bring all of these complicated emotions before God in it. Yeah. And there's kind of a, um, if you can bring it before God, like a trust that what the desired and will be is healing, right? Is wholeness. It's certainly not to stay in that place of shame or even, I mean, like even when there's an appropriate place for anger, it's not even to stay in that place of anger, right? Like it's, it's always moving us towards um, hope and healing. Well, I'm curious just as we kind of come to an end, whether there are places right now where you are seeing signs of hope and healing. I love the name of Erebon and that sense of just the foretaste of the kingdom. I've thought a lot about signposts of the kingdom where it's like, I'm just pointing in that direction. That's what that, I, I want my life to be that, whether or not it is, but I want to point in the direction of who God is and that shalom, like that uh, peace, wholeness uh, to community. So I'm curious whether you're seeing, tasting in any ways hope and healing right now yeah i mean i do i mean i see a lot of i mean i could say i see a lot of peaceful protests that are multi-ethnic you Mm -hmm. know um i see a lot of people really trying to dig into the like the story and history of our country i think people are coming to the reckoning realizing that like our country has been very problematic in the area of race overtly for centuries Mm -hmm. And hasn't even really made a significant corrective for, for hasn't even been a full um, six decades, you know, like it's, it's been decades in the way of, of trying to, to, to make a turnaround where it right. became illegal. Right? right. So I do see hope in that space. I think a different type of conversations that folks are like having. Yeah. I just, I just, and, and I don't feel like I'm like being a positive Pete. I don't think I'm like, right. Right. On it. I really do see a lot of things. I think, the conversations is about the monuments. I mean, I think the monuments should be like in, like in battlefields or in museums mm-hmm. and places to be able to kind of like tell a story. But it's yeah. like, hey, is that the story that we want to, to share? And and like to create a different and new cultural artifacts. Like I think prior to the to the vandalism of the the uh, monuments, I am um, I would have been more of like, hey, let's build some new cultural artifacts around it to kind of like create some different stereotypes but i'm mm-hmm. like instead of like spending the time to clean it up and all that money just like put the money towards removing it putting it into a proper place and then like can we create a, some new monuments to share a different narrative or story 
I want to ask one more thing because you and I got to go together to Nashville a little over a year ago for a project called the Porter's Gate Project that you were a part of. And one of the things you talked about um, there was creating collaborative spaces. And to me, one of the great hopes is in that possibility of collaborative spaces. So I just wondered if you'd share a little bit about what you meant um, by that. And and again, like what whether it's what happened when we were in Nashville or other examples you've had of collaborative spaces being essentially like, I mean, for me, at least that weekend was a foretaste of the kingdom. Like that was exactly what I think you've been talking about. So I just love I'd love to end there just with a vision of a collaborative space that gives us that little taste of heaven. Yes, I think one of the things is I say this often and like to borrow some ideas from Andy Crouch, we, what I, I think we need to understand the point of culture making. We're here today because of the culture that was made yesterday. Mm. So if we want to see something, we see something wrong today, we'll see something better tomorrow, we got to create new culture today. And that's something that we really need to pay attention to. What are the type of things that we're making? You know, and the natural thing is to make stuff with people that think like us, act like us. That's a very natural way mm. to do it. But could we, particularly we live in a society that has spent more of the years segregated. Like the way our cities were built, where if I had a black son and, you, you know, you had a white daughter, that they would not grow up together. Right. And to, 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 to fall in love and marry each other and have a mixed race baby. Like I wish I could tell you that our cities were designed with something else in mind, but literally from 1930s and 1950s, that was the most important mm. property where we built a lot of our um, city infrastructures during that period of time. And so what we need to do is not just when you do collaborations to just think about, oh, let me just think about somebody that's just like David, just like Amy Julia. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is think through, okay, is there some kind of cross-cultural collaboration that we can engage in, whether it's race, class, culture, education, what somebody calls like unusual coalition? Is some kind of unusual co- coalition that we can engage in? Mm-hmm. And then we can begin to think through, like, what's broken in the world and how can we create some new culture about it? And, and I, I want to always encourage people to like the conversion and like the, the beauty comes in that cross-cultural collaboration. Mm-hmm. You know, like my wife and I, the, the beauty that comes out of like the work that we do just in our marriage comes out of like the beauty comes out of the difference, you know? Right. And so I want to encourage people to think about that, to like find those things and not just like, hey, let's get together and have better conversations. Like talk while you do, right? Like, right. But like make something together. Yeah. Like have a shared goal and purpose and yeah. even recognize on the front end what we have in common across our differences that can allow us, but at the same time, seeing those differences is actually the strength in making something new, right? Because yeah, yeah. instead of you just reinforcing the idea I've already had because we're the same, and yeah. so we make the same thing as they would have made yesterday, it's like, yeah. oh, you actually can enhance. I mean, that's what I loved about this weekend because you had all these Christians, but they were um, from different churches different. and different cultural racial backgrounds. And so yeah. same scriptures, same faith, but and, phil- and, and philosophically different too. Mm-hmm. It was, and, and and like if we would have like jumped in and like, hey, what are your thoughts about any particular controversial issue? 
it wouldn't have been as much of a beautiful place. No, right? and instead what they did was they made beautiful music that was more enriched because of their yes. diversity. And that yes. also starts building relationships and friendships and allowing conversations to come out of a place of shared trust Yeah. instead of, hey, we're here to talk about hard things, right? Yeah, totally, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, well, David, thank you so much for giving your time. I know that it is precious right now because yes. you are being heavily called upon to serve all sorts of people. And I'm grateful for the work that you do. And we will make sure just to put in the show notes links to Erebon and oh, to thanks. the resources. Um, I shared actually your post. Uh, I quoted your newsletter the other day about anger because uh, that's something as a white Christian I need to learn about. <laughs> and I also... I'm just really grateful for the conversations we've had over the course of the past couple of years and for the way you use your gifts to bless other people. So thank you for that. Thanks. Thank you. And if anybody, you know, I just, there was an article in Christianity Today that we recently also just put in. If you just Google David Bailey and anger or something like that. Oh, um, great. Okay. Helpful, I didn't know yeah. that. I'll make sure that gets in the show notes as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you, David. Well, good. Well, blessings to you. You too. Thanks so much for listening. I do invite you to look at the show notes or just visit arabon.com. It's A-R-R-A-B-O-N.com. You can learn more about David's ministry. You also could learn about the work they do and how you could support that, whether by inviting a team of people from Arabon to your church or by utilizing some of their resources or even just by making a financial contribution to the work that they're doing. You also can find out more about White Picket Fences if you haven't read it already. But if you have read it and you want to find some people to discuss it with, use it in a Bible study at church, or look at other ways to have White Picket Fences enter into conversation with people right now, you can go to my website, amyjuliabecker.com. And of course, this is a podcast. It's a new season, and I would so appreciate your support in getting the word out. You can do that by sharing this episode with friends, send them a text, send them an email, put it up on social media. You also can rate and review the podcast wherever you find your podcasts. That helps people to know that it exists and that it might be relevant for what they want to be thinking about and talking about right now. And just a little sneak peek, next week we are going to be talking about disability and contemplation and activism and what it means for life to be a gift with my friend and author, speaker, podcaster, and mom, Micah Boyette. So tune in next week. You can subscribe right now and it'll just drop right into your, uh, wherever you get your podcasts next Tuesday morning. And again, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for working to trust alongside me that love is stronger than fear.